If you would look in your <coughs> worship folder on page 13, you'll find our, our scripture reading for us this morning. God's word to us this morning comes from Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Hear God's word to us. Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received us, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards us, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we all gather here as sinners, not just any sinner, but also as sexual sinners. In one way or another, all of us here are broken in our sexuality, and it manifests itself in us in different ways, subtle ways, even perhaps ways we don't recognize. We pray that you meet us this morning in this text, that you help us to see that you are the God of grace and forgiveness that moves towards sexual sinners, that's not afraid to be touched by sexual sinners, but yet also calls us as your people to be sanctified and to be holy. So may we wrestle deeply with these words of Paul, which are your words, Lord, for our life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're on the home stretch of this nine-month sermon series on human sexuality. There's only three more left, including this one. (laughs) I think Quentin's the only guy here that... (laughs) Um, <clears throat> there is a New York Times uh, magazine article uh, from a couple weeks back. And the title is, Is an Open Marriage a Happier Marriage? Written by a woman named Susan Dominus. And um, the article really is an exploration of this idea of, of, of open marriage. And um, you, some of you might be thinking, well, what is open marriage? Well, um, the idea is basically this, is you stay married and you have a primary marriage partner and yet your relationship is open to other sexual relationships outside of your marriage. And this can look like a whole lot of different things. It's not to be married to multiple people, but it's to have sort of like, you know, agreement among spouses. Now, this is a kind of a shocking thing, I think, for, you know, many people, this idea of open marriage. And the essay itself was... I think exploring the, the possibilities of it uh, being a good thing, and of course in conservative blogs and media, this article was seized upon and quickly condemned. And as I read this essay, I, I was struck by one, um, a sense of profound confusion about what marriage is, and with a deep sadness as well, 
um, for the people in, the, in, the, in you know, wrestling with this in their lives. In many ways, the essay is uh, a kind of a, a way of arguing that, hey, adultery can actually be good for your marriage, right? I mean, that's really what this idea is. And yet it's easy for us as Christians to be critical and to judge and, and to be dismissive. But as I was reading this essay, I kept asking this question, what is it? What is it that motivates people to open up their marriage? And there's lots of different kinds of reasons. It's not just because they want more or better sex or something, although that's the case in some. But at the end of the day, I think the bottom line is, is that in, in almost all cases, their marriage just wasn't giving them everything they wanted. And that could have been sexual in nature. It could have been more sort of intimacy interaction. And the introduction of other relationships kind of helps supplement that. But it got me thinking more and more as I tried to put this essay, which isn't a mainstream. I mean, I know most of you probably think of the New York Times as a kind of a liberal newspaper, and it is, but it's pretty mainstream. It's not a fringe newspaper. That these ideas, I think, um, for much of the population would never be workable and would we'd be absurd, but there's something yet deeper driving our culture um, on all kinds of issues around sexuality. And I think it's this, is that we have, sexuality is the new spirituality. There's a way that the people in these essays, in this essay, are looking for something from marriage that marriage can never provide, that marriage ought never to provide. The um, cultural critic Ernst Becker wrote a well-known, famous book back in the 1960s called The Denial of Death. And Becker has, talks about what is it, part of this is living in a secular age, living in a world without God, and he says that in the absence of transcendence in our life, we turn to sexuality, we turn to romance to give us that thing that religion used to give us. And Becker writes this, he says, the love partner, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life, and all spiritual and moral needs now become focused on, in on one individual. And he goes on to say, and if you don't have a God in heaven, and Becker is actually not a Christian, he's just a cultural sort of observer. He says, if you don't have a God in heaven, and it's an invisible dimension that justifies your visible one, then you take what is nearest at hand, and you work out your problems on that. I think the deep irony of, you know, the debates and questions about marriage in our culture is this, is that even as, in a sense, we have unhinged religion and traditional religious values around marriage from the practice of marriage, we've come to actually put and expect more from marriage. So we've lowered our understanding of marriage, and yet we've increased our expectation of what it ought to deliver. And I think that actually this is, helps us get into this text. Because when Paul is making, he's trying to reconnect for us spirituality and sexuality. Look at our text. This is the main verse I want us to reflect on. For this is God's will, your sanctification. That word sanctification simply means your being made holy, your being made set apart and sanctified. God's will is your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. And it was that phrase, who do not know God. So what Paul is doing is he was, he's making a connection. He's saying those who engage in sexual immorality, and that, that word in, in the Greek is the word porneia, of course, where we get our word porno, porn or pornography, 
And in Paul's age, what it means is any form of illicit sexual engagement or activity. So it really covers the gamut of pretty much anything that would be sexual sin. And Paul is saying here, those who engage in sexual immorality like the Gentiles, they don't know God. See, sexual, the sexual sin, and I've, we've been talking about this, is not simply like any other sin. I mean, there is something distinct about it. There's a spiritual dimension to it. It's not simply that we're violating some law because our sexuality gets at something deep about us. Our ultimate longing for God, our ultimate longing for heaven, our ultimate longing for completion and union with something that is beyond us. And for Paul, he's speaking to a Gentile audience in Thessalonia of Greeks, people. In many ways, their context would have been very much like our own. You know, we often talk about, you know, losing traditional morality, and we think of Christian morality as traditional sexuality, but in fact, Actually, in our world, we are reverting back to the real traditional sexuality of the pagan world. Because what our world looks like now more and more is actually what the first century looked like when Christians came into it. And so there's incredible relevance of this text for our own time. And just as to give you a sense, is, you know, Paul is especially singling out men in the congregation in Thessalonica. And it would have been very common in the ancient world for a man who was married to have multiple sexual partners. Um, Demosthenes, who was a, a, a third century BC um, orator and politician in ancient Greece, gives an expression, gives kind of the articulation of male sexuality. He says, for this is what it is to live with a woman as one's wife, to have children by her, introduce sons and members into the clan and daughters, to have mistresses that we keep for the sake of pleasure, and then concubines for daily care of our persons but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. And so in Paul's day, in, in, in Greek society for men, not for women, for men, you have your wife and your wife gives you children, but then you have a mistress and she's your, like your intellectual equal. She's the one who you, you, know, you, you have that. And then you have concubines or, or oftentimes slaves or prostitutes who just kind of take care of your daily needs. And Paul is saying, no more, this cannot be so. This is not how God created us to be. And in many ways, just as countercultural as Paul's words into Thessalonica are, it is the same for us. In the ancient world, sexuality and religion were not connected. The gods were not examples for sexual morals. <laughs> sexuality was its own realm, and the gods were their own realm. And the biblical tradition, though, is utterly countercultural to this. Because God himself creates human sexuality. God creates male and female and connects. And Paul here is reconnecting spirituality and sexuality. And so really the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is, what does it mean for us to be sexually sanctified? What does it mean for us to be sexually sanctified? Abstain from sexual immorality. Learn how to control one's own body with holiness and honor. The Christian tradition developed a virtue and reflection on what it called chastity as its way of talking about sexual holiness. And I want to talk this morning about chastity. I know some of you are thinking, holy cow, a sermon on chastity. How quaint. Or how backwards. But 
friends, of all the sermons that I've been sort of looking through and planning on, this is the one I've actually been looking, one of the ones I've been looking to forward to preaching on the most. Because it's so relevant. Not just for those who are single, but those who are married. Wherever you find yourself, chastity is an important. So I want to talk uh, to, uh, this morning about what is chastity, why we need it, and how we get it. What is chastity, why we need it, and how we get it. I think of it as this great moral treasure that's been buried for many centuries that we really haven't looked at in real seriousness. And I think it's important that we do that, especially in a sermon series on sexuality. So let me give you just a basic definition of chastity. And most of you are going to probably know this, but then I need to want to deepen it for you. Chastity is basically sexual abstinence before marriage and sexual faithfulness within marriage. Sexual abstinence before marriage and sexual faithfulness within marriage. And so uh, chastity applies not just to those who are single. It actually applies especially so to those who are married. And oftentimes, you know, there's these, um, in evangelical culture, there's these movements like True Love Waits, which are great at teaching kids about abstinence. But oftentimes I think there's, there's, when the church historically has talked about abstinence, it's generally like a no. No, sex is bad. No, don't do that, right? It's, it's a sort of negatively framed kind of thing. But what you have to get from the very beginning here is that chastity is a no in order to say yes. It's a no to one form of sexual activity to protect another. It's a no in order for a yes. And chastity is not, again, it is not the suppression of desire. It is not the denial that we are sexual beings and creatures that have desires. Chastity is about the disciplining of desire. It's about the directing of desire in the right pathways. It's meant to protect and to integrate us, the wildness of sexual desire in one place. Actually, the, the finest treatment of chastity that you can find, <laughs> really, you can find in the Catholic Catechism. And I, there's a quote from the beginning, um, but I just want to read you one line because I, I think that this begins to open up for us the deeper definition of what, we, what the Christian tradition has always understood by chastity. Chastity means the successful integration of sexuality within the person and thus an inner unity of a man or woman in his bodily spiritual being. It's an integration of oneself, body and soul, in unity. And so part of, again, what we've been wrestling with here is, well, what is even sexuality? Our culture, in many ways, has a very narrow definition of sexuality. The hookup culture basically sees sexuality as a biological need and urge that you have to sort of satisfy, just like eating or drinking or sleep, and so you just satisfy it. And what I've been arguing is that no, sexuality is something more like it's, it's more than just you know, what you do with your, you know, your genitals. It's more comprehensive. Sexuality is networked in a sense. It's networked in with all these other deep drives in our life. Our sense of self, our sense of being a gendered person in a body and how I relate to people of the opposite sex and the same sex. It has to do with my sense of purpose in life. You know, we find sexuality given to us in the Bible in the beginning says, God says to, to the first man and woman, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Have dominion and authority. That there's something about human sexuality that is networked in 
with our desire for purpose, for our desire for fruitfulness and procreativeness, to create something in this world that is meaningful, but it's also connected with our desire and capacity to love, the desire to want to give ourselves, to be received, to be known and to know. See, all these things are networked. This is what sexuality is. And so when you begin to think about what chastity is about, it's actually about the regulation, the ordering of desire, of sex, and all these different interconnected things. There's a way that I, I and, and you might be curious about the title of this sermon. Um, I changed it a bunch of times, so I forget what it is right now. Um, uh, the sexual beauty uh, of chastity, or chastity as sexual beauty. Chastity is about creating something beautiful. It's, it's about using and controlling one's desires and passions, those deep urges to give oneself, to connect with another, and bodily longing, and making it something beautiful. Um, think about learning to play an instrument. I've picked up Jamie's violin before and just sort of strummed. He probably didn't see me do this, because <laughs> that violin costs more than my car. Um, no, but, but it's, it's, when you hear somebody play a violin that doesn't know how to play a violin, it is, it is like nails on a chalkboard. It is like, it's, it's a screeching, it's a cacophony, right? But what happens when Jamie picks up the violin? He, it's beautiful, right? It's beautiful, it lifts you up. Now, Jamie didn't just learn how to play the violin. He went to school, he's practiced, he's put hundreds of, thousands of hours and he still puts in hundreds of hours practicing. And he creates something beautiful with it. Now here, <laughs> with that violin. Your sexuality, our sexuality is in the same way that lust in a sense, lust in a sense is a screeching. It's noise. It's not beautiful. Chastity is about creating something beautiful with one's life. Yesterday I was at a funeral for a man named Lou Brasser. Lou was 88. He was a lifetime member at Brookfield Christian Reformed Church, which is our, our home church, our mother church. Last time I saw Lou was here on a Sunday morning. He came to visit about a year, year and a half ago. And during, and I, I you know, I was chumming with, with Lou, and he was a sweet man, was always very positive and encouraging. Um, but it's not like I was really close with Lou, but I was at this funeral, and his grandson and his son and a friend, and, and then Peter Verhulst, the pastor, were sharing about Lou. And I found that and through the entire funeral that I was weeping. I just couldn't control it. And the reason was not so much because I was going to miss Lou. It's not like I hardly saw him. I was weeping because his life was so beautiful. It was so beautiful, friends. He was faithful to his wife for 58 years. His life was beautiful. And when you got up, I've been to funerals where... Sons and grandsons struggle to say something good about their fathers. It's usually something superficial, some kind of quirky thing that becomes the great thing about them. But really, they weren't great because they were unfaithful. They weren't there. But Lou wasn't. And so I just heard story upon story, and I was just overwhelmed with a kind of the beauty of this man's life. Friends, Lou was a chaste man. He had chastity. He knew how to control himself. In a way, he, he, was, he learned the central truth of what chastity is about. It's learning to direct your longings to love others rather than to live for yourself. Okay, so 
Chastity is something that creates beauty, moral beauty, sexual beauty in our life. And in a way, I've already answered this question of why we need it. But I want to drill down a little bit more with this. Why do we need chastity in our life? We need chastity in order to integrate for the sake of a proper integration of our sexual desire in life. To be integrated people, body and soul, integrated in terms of ourselves and the community, male and female, my sense of self with my vocation in the world. And the reality is this, is that we all, in one way or another, are not integrated. <laughs> we are broken. We love the wrong things or we love certain things too much. And so there's a couple images um, around chastity. Um, I'm going to mix my metaphors a little bit. But there's a way that chastity is that moral virtue that one is, is a form of therapy. It's a form of therapy um, for sexual desires. It, it teaches us how to distinguish between lust and love. Chastity teaches us how to distinguish between lust and love. Our culture is so confused about sexuality in part because it no longer can distinguish between lust and love. It says that if I feel it, unless it's illegal or non-consenting, if I feel it, it must be right. But friends, that, just think, I mean, <laughs> that makes sense in no other context of life. Why would it make sense, why would it be true in our sexuality? So, so chastity, it's like when you go to a therapist, oftentimes one of the questions is, well, how, do you, how does that make you feel? That's the question. Oftentimes a therapist is helping you ask questions about things that are going on in your life, and they're helping you to try to discern about proper and improper ways of thinking about things. And that's what the virtue of chastity does. It helps us discern the difference between lust and love. But there's another way I want to introduce another metaphor, that chastity is like training. The way that, a, that an athlete trains. If you want to be a great runner, you can't just, you have to train your body. You have to exercise. If you want to be a great basketball player, you have to shoot and practice. The human heart and the human body is like that. You have to train it. You have, this is what Paul means, that each ought to know how to control his or her own body in holiness, in honor, not in passionate lust. And it's that, that phrase where Paul says, and, and Paul is there giving us actually the deepest root of all forms of porneia or sexual immorality, which is passionate lust. There's a word there in the Greek that's very important. It's the word epithumia, and it's the word, uh, it gets translated as lust or, or passionate desire. Um, but really what it means is over-desire or excess of desire. And, and that, that's what lust is. I mean, Friends, we are desiring creatures. Chastity is not about suppressing desire. It's about directing it. It's about taking control of it. It's like a horse that needs to be bridled and directed. Lust is misdirected desire and love. And what it is, is it's a form of chaos of desire that goes berserk in our life. I love the witness of St. Augustine of Hippo. Many of you know Augustine. Perhaps you don't know that Augustine was... He had a sex problem. Many people actually say that Augustine was a sex addict. I'm not sure that's true or not, but he certainly was a man who had lots and lots of sex before he became a Christian. Even after he, be, he was a bishop, he's writing his confessions, which is a, his spiritual memoir. And he still, in his confessions, he confesses to the fact that he still dreams of having sex with women from his previous life. But Augustine says something that I think is so important. He, 
He, he talks about his past. He talks about his sexual exploits as, as, as a kind of dissipation of himself, a scattering of himself and a fragmenting of himself such that he's scattered and he's lost. And he says this about chastity, and it's, it's again quoted in your reflection. He says, it's chastity or continence. By, by it, we are gathered together and led back to the unity from which we were fragmented into multiplicity. See, that's what chastity, the virtue of chastity is. It's, it, is a, it, is, it is that virtue that unifies us, that pulls us together from the chaos. You know, I've spent a, line, um, a number of weeks back talking about the way that, that lust or pornea destroys us, and I, I, won't, I won't go into it, but one of the things I want to say is this, is that and lust blows out more fires than it starts. We often think about lust as something, or, or passionate desire, as, as in the form of, of fire. And there, there's a way that that's true. But it's more like this. It's more like you have a fire pit of wood, and you dump a bucket of water on top of that wood, and then you spray the wood with lighter fluid, and then you throw a flame down. <laughs> What's going to happen? It's going to burn. The, the, the lighter fluid is going to burn, but as soon as it burns off, that fire goes out because the wood's wet. <laughs> you think about what it means, you know, of trying to start a fire when it's windy outside. You have to sort of protect it from the wind. And see, lust is like a wind that blows out all the fires that you need to keep alive, that you need to nurture. There are certain fires that are, that, that are like a flickering flame that you, you have to attend to, that you, you have to protect and those are the fires, friends, that will, that will get big and they will burn hot, but they take time to cultivate. They don't just start like that. And the danger of passionate desire is that it blows out fires, the fires you need. It damages your ability to enter into relationships and keep it. Friends, I mean, oftentimes I think in Christian culture we think we believe in abstinence well, sex is for marriage, but and we don't, it's not as if when you get into marriage, all of a sudden it's like a free-for-all. <laughs> you have to exercise discipline. You have to exercise chastity, and you have to regulate yourself in a sense. And so, friends, if, you're, if you struggle with pornography before you get married, and you don't, and it's a way to just deal with, and you get into marriage, it's not as if pornography is going to go away just because now you can have sex with somebody. <laughs> There's a way that, that, that all of these sexual sins, all these things, they, they, when we ignore them, they damage our ability to carry on the kinds of love and relationships that we deeply, deeply desire. And so chastity is about directing our love, our love to God and towards our neighbor with integrity. One of the things that Paul says here that I think is quite important um, he says <clears throat> in verse 5, or rather verse, um, verse 5, he says, so we, we, we don't treat our bodies in passionate lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one transgress or wrong his brother or sister in this matter. What Paul is saying is that part of the, the problem with sexual immorality is that you wrong your brother. And that word there, transgress, I think is the right word because it has the idea of crossing boundaries. There's a, what Paul is saying is that when you, when you engage in this kind of activity, not only do you self-harm, but you do harm to others. You use them. 
You, you use them for your own pleasure. If, I, mean, the whole, I mean, so much of sexuality, sexual practice in our culture, especially hookup culture, is all about mutual self-using. <laughs> I have this need. I need you know, like, and, and we use and we abuse and we defraud ourselves. And, and, and you don't realize that damages your ability as a human being to give yourself as a gift to others in love. And you so desire that as a human being. It's central to how God created you to be. One of our deepest human desires is to be a gift, to gift to others, to give our bodies to others. And chastity is about understanding how the boundaries need to be in place in order that we might properly give one another, ourselves to another. And I think this, this is, you know, at, you know, and I would say in this church, I know we all struggle with sexual sin in one variety or another, but um, I think in Christian contexts especially that are take the scripture seriously, it's not so much maybe sleeping with your girlfriend or things like that, but we have to be guarded about the way that we can violate this emotionally, not just physically. Because that's really, we're talking about desire here, that it's possible, in other words, to be chaste physically and yet unchaste emotionally. To where you, you sort of enter into emotional relationships and you make offers and, and things and then you pull it back, Right? Or you, you give yourself in such a way that doesn't really take the other into account. Um, to illustrate this, um, I was at, um, at Goodwill um, three or four weeks ago um, looking for some glasses for the church. And uh, there was a woman that was standing in front of one of the, the, um, the, area, the aisles or the racks that I was looking at. And I just, I just uh, I said, oh, excuse me, can I get in here and look? And as she turned around, and I was a, uh, um, a woman with Down syndrome, she turned around and she just hugged me. She hugged me and she held on to me for a while, and which I was okay with. I learned her name. Her name was Beth. And then she was talking to me, and we were, and, but she, the, the whole time she, her, her chest was here and she was, she was touching me. And, and so I, after, and I said, and I sort of gently said, oh, okay, Beth, um, you know, that's, you know, you have to, don't, don't touch me like that. I mean, I, you know, this is very common for with Down syndrome, right? And as soon as I, in a sense, she felt my boundaries or my rejection, she just bent over like this, right? You know, in shame because she had gone too far, right? She had sensed that she had gone too far. Now, this is very, very common. Now, the reality is, is that hug made my day. <laughs> it really did. I'm not just saying it, it made my day. And yet, though, I think a lot of us were like Beth, that that, that we, sometimes we don't actually know how to love. Sometimes we, we go past the boundaries because we so want to connect. We want to give ourselves, and yet, and then we retreat in shame. And chastity, again, is that virtue that teaches us how, how to be attentive to the other, how to be skillful in how we love another person. Early in my marriage, or actually before I was married, um, when Katie and I were dating, I used to buy her um, clothes. And... Um, I, I did not, it didn't go well. Like, they were either not her size, or they were styles that she would just never wear. And it was early on, and you know, early on when you're dating, you're, it's like, well, it's the thought that counts, right? But when you get married, like, that doesn't hold anymore. Like, <laughs> it's not just, you can't just throw a gift and say, I was thinking about you. And, and the problem, and, and I sort of backed off on giving clothes gifts. I've, I've sort of started re-entering to that with fear and trepidation. But, but in a way, what did my gift, my gift, I mean, I was giving a gift. I love you. Here. 
And yet it was a gift they didn't really attend to her. Like, it, it, was a, it was not a gift that demonstrated that I knew her well and that I was really trying to figure out what she would want. And I think that's a lot of the ways we are in life. We're, we, want, we love and we want to just give ourselves. And yet, there's a way that we don't actually, aren't attending to the other and how they would want to be loved. So again, this is, again, this is chastity, friends. This is what it means to be a skillful lover. Not just in marriage, but in all relationships. Attending to people. And just because you offer a gesture of love and you mean it, doesn't mean you're always effectively loving a person. And chastity teaches us how to do that. So the question you probably are wondering, well, how do I get this chastity? Give me chastity. Or as Augustine say, give me chastity, but not yet. That's a quote. How do we get chastity? There's three things I want to talk about. Three things to close. The first thing is this. In order to become chaste, to cultivate chastity in your life, you have to make God the ultimate desire of your life. I want to draw your attention back to verses 1 and 2. Uh, Paul writes, We urge you in the Lord Jesus how you ought to walk and to please God. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. In other words, brothers and sisters, you pleasing God needs to be the highest call and desire of your life. The first thing about chastity in our life is learning to direct our desires to their ultimate fulfillment, to their ultimate end. And this is what Jesus, this is what Jesus called the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Making God the center of your love is the beginning of becoming chaste. Why? And I said a couple of weeks ago that the greatest gift you can offer your kids is actually not loving your kids more, but actually loving God more than your kids. And you'll learn to love your kids more when you love God more than them. Why? Because you don't turn them into an idol and suffocate them. You don't try to live through them or get saved through them. But there's a way that when your love is directed to God, what happens when we love God more than anything else is God begins to purify and to elevate and to sanctify all the other loves. He begins to bring order and harmony and beauty from, you know, just a screeching on the strings of a violin to where you're playing beautiful melody. That's what the love of God does in our life. And when lust or um, things that grip, misdirected loves have a hold of our life, the only way, friend, that you will ever dislodge and overcome unhealthy love and lust in your life is by a newer, better, more superior love driving it out. There's a famous sermon by a Puritan named Thomas Chalmers, and the title of the sermon captures the very heart of the idea. He, the name of the sermon is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in that sermon, what Chalmers says is, is that the way that you overcome lust and inordinate desire in your life is you have a new and greater love that displaces it. And I've experienced this personally in my own life. Sorry for two marriage illustrations in one sermon, honey. When I first started dating my wife, I was getting over um, my first real relationship. And I really wasn't over it when I started dating Katie. And I even broke up with her because I thought, well, I'm not over it. I can't. But I came to realize, and as Katie was patient and persisted, that the only way that I was ever going to overcome this, this previous love that had, that, that had broken and fallen apart is by a new love. And now when I think back 20 years ago, this is 20 years ago, it seems really silly how, you know, um, how hard that was for me. And yet her love, in a sense, drove out the love of this other woman. 
It drove it out. Because the human heart, friends, is like a vacuum for love. You, need, you love something, right? And the only way to get over a broken love or a sinful love, a misdirected love, is a new and better love. And that love has to be the love of God. And so that's the first point, is that you have to make God the ultimate desire and destiny of your greatest heart's desires. But the second one is this, and very briefly, you have to learn how to pray without ceasing. This is, Paul says later in 1 Thessalonians 5, he commands the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Peter, when he's, uh, 1 Peter talks about, he's talking also about these issues of passionate lust. He says this, is, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Friends, do not underestimate prayer as central to your cultivation of right desire in your life. Because what is prayer at the end of the day? It is our longing to God. It's lifting up all of our longings to God. And so when you're in the midst of temptation, whether it's just sheer physical temptation, or whether it's in the midst of struggle of longing, of a love that's not consummated, or a love that's lost, or a desire for something you know is not right, friends, what you ought to do, what you have to do is you need to bring it that longing to God, and you process it, and you cry out to the Lord in prayer, because prayer is the place where our deepest longings meet the presence of the God in the Spirit, such that our whole lives become a prayer. That's what Paul means, to pray without ceasing, is for your whole life to become a prayer. St. Teresa said, it is not with the noise of words that God hears us, but with longing. So you have to make God the ultimate desire of your heart. You have to pray, and then finally, you need deep repentance in your life. This is a text that is quite direct in God's judgment on sexual sin. God is an avenger. He will avenge all these things. (laughs) As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Friends, sexual sin has gravity and seriousness, and God will judge it. But friends, here is the good news. He was judged first by it. (laughs) He was judged first by it. And part of us learning to become chaste is recognizing that the deeper our repentance around our sexual sins, and really all sin, the more the love of God and the joy of God sort of bubbles up in our lives. And let me give you a story to illustrate this. In Luke 7, and this is, I'm closing here with this. In Luke chapter 7, there's a woman who is, was a prostitute, and she comes to Jesus into this Pharisee's house named Simon, and she has an alabaster jar full of perfume, and she pours it out on Jesus, on his feet, anoints him. And she starts wiping his feet with her hair. Does that sound erotic to you? It is. The Pharisee, Simon, is completely floored. And he's thinking in his mind, if this man was a prophet, he would knew what kind of woman this is. And what is Jesus' response? He says, Simon, I want to tell you a story. There was a man, um, two men owed debts. One owed $50. The other one owed $5,000. Which man do you think loved him more? 
and he forgave both debts. Which one do you think loved him more? And Simon was forced to say, well, of course, the one who paid more. And Simon says this, he says, or Jesus says this, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. Friends, why was that woman willing to sort of be so expressive of her love to Jesus? Because she knew she was forgiven so much. See, if, if, if we... See, the more deeply you repent, the more deeply you recognize that your sin, our sin is a deep, deep offense to God and that God and Jesus Christ himself so judged by it, the more we repent around this, the more love, the more joy comes in and the more God reorders our lives. May it not be lost on you that this woman, as a sexual sinner, Jesus was not afraid for her to touch him. And Jesus is not afraid for you and for me as sexual sinners to touch him. He receives us as we are, but he does not let us stay as we are. And he's the one who gives us the grace to follow and to obey. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may you give us a vision for the beauty of a chaste life. May this not be some Puritan, Victorian notion, but may it be something that we pursue and embrace with our lives. Make us beautiful, Lord, and how we love one another and how we love you. And may we know how great your love for us in Jesus Christ is, who died for us and was judged for us. May that love spring up in our hearts more and more. We pray in his name. Amen.